This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. In our last episode, we published a live recorded discussion on China's response to a changing security environment held at the Asia Policy Assembly and organized by the National Bureau of Asian Research and the National Defense University. For the months of July and August, we will continue to release these live recorded sessions from the assembly. This episode features a discussion about democracy in Asia. Michael Wills moderates the session with Dr. Daniel Twining, Carolyn Bartholomew, and Ambassador Tariq Karim. Let me introduce these participants. Michael Wills is Executive Vice President at MBR. He manages MBR's financial and business operations and publications and outreach programs, including the Strategic Asia series and Asia Policy Journal. His research expertise includes international security and the international relations of Asia, with a particular interest in China's relations with Southeast Asia. Dr. Daniel Twining is president of the International Republican Institute, leading a team of 600 global experts to link people and governments, motivate people to engage in the political process, and guide politicians and government officials to be responsive to citizens. He previously served as counselor and director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Dr. Daniel Twining served as a member of the U.S. Secretary of State's policy planning staff, a foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senator John McCain, and a staff member of the U.S. Trade Representative. Next. Carolyn Bartholomew is chairman of the U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission. She served as counsel, legislative director, and chief of staff to now House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi. She was also a professional staff member on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and served as a legislative assistant to then-U.S. Representative Bill Richardson. She has particular expertise in U.S.-China relations, including issues related to trade, human rights, and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And Chairman Bartholomew led efforts to the establishment and funding of global AIDS programs and the promotion of human rights and democratization in countries around the world. Ambassador Tariq Karim is a career diplomat of Bangladesh. His career spanned over three decades, beginning in 1967 as a member of the Pakistan Foreign Service. Soon after Bangladesh's independence in 1971, he played an important role in creating the personnel and administration departments in the nascent foreign ministry. The ambassador went on to hold numerous assignments at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Bangladesh and abroad, including Ambassador to the United States, Ambassador to Iran, Deputy Chief of Mission in Beijing, and High Commissioner in New Delhi. In this discussion, our panelists reflect on the current situation in Hong Kong, share their thoughts on the broader trends of democracy across Asia, and analyze the tension between democratic and authoritarian forces in the region. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Welcome back, everybody. Reaching the end of our program, but delighted to begin our afternoon session with a critically important discussion on the state of democracy in Asia. I'll be moderating. My name is Michael Wills. I'm the Executive Vice President at NBR in Seattle. I'm joined today with three distinguished guests. Their full bios are in the programs, but just to go down the line, Daniel Twining, who's the President of the International Republican Institute, IRI. Carolyn Bartholomew, the current Chair of the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission. And then Ambassador Tariq Karim, distinguished diplomat from Bangladesh and currently doing some work with the World Bank. And we're fortunate to have him visiting Washington, DC today. And I thought I'd start with just a couple of opening remarks, um, which are a good news story. Just over a month ago, Indonesia announced the results of an election 
in which four out of five of an electorate of 190 million people voted uh, peacefully. This is the, the third largest democracy in Asia, in the world, actually, the largest Muslim democracy in the world. And one example, I think, of what Asia is able to do in terms of fulfilling democratic traditions. Right about the same time, India announced the official results of a four or five week election process in which two out of three from an electorate of 900 million peacefully voted for a change of government. And so as you look across Asia, you can see some great examples of democracy thriving and, and you know, strengthening for the future. And as you all know, much of the discussion we've had over the last day and a half has been on the bad side of the ledger, China, where there's really not much sense yet of moves toward democracy. In fact, we just commemorated the 30th, 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen crackdown, one of the, the best attempts in, in recent years for, for China to move towards a democratic future. Our panelists this afternoon will begin to unpack some of these trends that they see in the region. They'll each speak for a few minutes, uh, and then we'll open up for discussion from the, and questions from the floor. Dan, we'll start with you. Okay, thanks, Michael. I'm so delighted to be here with you and Roy and Senator Gordon and the whole team. I, I'm so grateful for what NBR does and have been for many years. So thank you for all that contribution to Asia policy and scholarship and research. I'm going to go broad, and my colleagues are going to go deep. So I'm just going to set the scene here a little bit. And I would like to start, without going deep at all, with the fact that 10 days ago, you had a million Hong Kong citizens in the streets. Carrie Lam pulled that extradition bill from legislative consideration. You then had 2 million Hong Kong people in the streets, which is 25% of the entire population of Hong Kong. So obviously, you all have been talking about this, and we'll talk more about it. But when, whenever you hear an argument that says, Chinese people or Chinese culture or Confucian values or whatever it is don't value individual liberty and freedoms. There is just so much evidence to refute that, including coming from China itself. So it really is so striking to so many of us that after commemorating the very grim 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square, that you had almost simultaneously, almost like in a split screen, these incredible images of very brave Hong Kong citizens stepping up from all walks of life on an issue that they just care about so much. And it's a reminder, moving to point two, there is a reaction, not just outside of China, but frankly inside of China, to the Xi Jinping centralization project. I think a lot of us, certainly a lot of my colleagues in the wider universe, have talked themselves into believing that there is a different Chinese way, that the Chinese Communist Party has perfected a model, a kind of a techno-authoritarian model that has delivered extraordinary economic performance for many years, lifting more people than in any other country out of poverty, building a middle-class society, creating global tech leaders, et cetera, et cetera, things many of you know much more about than I do. But really, there are these evident countercurrents, which is that building a high-tech innovation middle-class society under really an uber-Leninist model, not just of party control, but of the centralization of power in one man, that there is an innate tension there, and it's not clear that the CCP modernization project, frankly, will succeed along political lines as long as these trends continue to emanate from China. So what I hear, and many of you follow this much more closely, is that there are ever more rumblings in leadership circles in China about are we taking the right course? 
Not in terms of necessarily all of these external developments in Chinese foreign policy, but in terms of the centralization project in China itself, which has been so enabled by digital technology. So that's point two. I'd certainly love to come back to all these issues. Point three, I mean, as Michael mentioned, India and Indonesia, together you had more than a billion Asians voting just in the last couple of months. Actually, Surprisingly successful elections. Modi's majority grew substantially in India, the BJP majority, Jokowi's re-election, et cetera. Uh, it's always surprising to me when people look at smaller Asian countries, uh, or they look at China, and they see a highly illiberal anti-democratic trend. Because I think a lot of us look at South and Southeast Asia, as well as the democracies, the rich democracies in East Asia, and we see a region where democracy looks rather vigorous and robust. Again, I'm happy to come back to these issues. I mean, I think there are some concerns in both India and Indonesia around majoritarian politics and other forms of online mobilization that are not healthy. But really, these are cases where citizens turned out rather dramatically to express their preferences in free votes and delivered decisive outcomes. Democracy is working in those countries. Point four, there are lots of countries where if we had been sitting here even a couple years ago, we would be talking about them in totally different ways, and one of those is Malaysia, where for the first time in more than six decades, an opposition coalition won in a system that the then ruling party had so gerrymandered and shaped that it was very, very difficult. I mean, I'm understating the degree of difficulty involved in defeating the former UMNO coalition. Malaysians did this not because they all have Jeffersonian democracy dreams, but because they were fed up with corruption and elite capture and that nexus of business and politics under the one-party state in Malaysia. And it was their choice. They did it despite extraordinary odds. Their leaders are undertaking a set of reforms, some more slowly than others, try to grapple with really a systemic change in Malaysian politics after, again, more than six decades of one-party rule, which shows that the region can always surprise us. Point five is that, of course, the trends are not even everywhere the trends are uneven. Even in countries like Thailand that do not enjoy genuine democracy, the ruling system went to extraordinary lengths to ape democratic forms in these recent elections, extraordinary lengths. In Cambodia, the Hun Sen regime went to some lengths to ape a democratic election last July, which of course wasn't a democratic election. But it's quite interesting that really outside of North Korea, even in countries that are struggling, that I think we would not call functioning democracies, democratic forms are still valued enough that strong men, strong leaders, authoritarians, work to manipulate the system within those forms. Point six, and don't worry, I only have seven. There are a set of dangers to watch. I mean, the thing about democracy is it doesn't solve all your problems. Americans have realized that. We've been working on it for over 200 years. All of our problems are not solved. Democracy does not create heaven on earth. What it does is it prevents mob rule. It prevents civil war. That's kind of the basic what democracy does. And ideally, it should protect human liberty and freedom. That is the idea of a democratic system. It's not, democracy is not an end in itself. It's a means to things we value more in life, like human freedom and dignity and inalienable rights. Human nature being what it is, there is always going to be a struggle. I work in a democracy NGO. We work in 90 countries. 35 years from now, we were founded 35 years ago, I suspect we'll still be working in 90 countries because the work is never really done. And so we're gonna talk more about Bangladesh. 
with the ambassador where I do think there is a set of concerns around the lack of political, the difficulty of political participation by the opposition, which is definitely worth talking about because I think it will inculcate and breed more dangerous forms of alienation and extremism. There is a problem in Cambodia that involves Chinese state capture. Cambodia had an election last July in which the ruling party won 125 seats out of 125 seats. And the ruling party didn't do that because it's 100% popular. It did that because there was literally no democratic choice. There, were, there, was, there was no credible opposition able to run in that election. And we have seen malign forms of foreign influence grow there. A country like Vietnam, which has so much possibility and potential and has had such an extraordinary trajectory over the last 20 years, there are always going to be limits to Vietnam's partnership with the United States as long as it is not a more open society, as long as it arrests peaceful bloggers and dissidents. That is going to put a ceiling on security cooperation, the kind of security cooperation that Vietnam's leaders actually crave with the United States. And then concerns around majoritarian politics. You know, I think you've seen that in Sri Lanka. Some people worry that you will see more of it in India. We have seen some of it in Bangladesh. But this concern that you get a, a strong majority that does not protect those minority rights that are so essential to any democracy, again, through the prism of individual liberty and freedom. Finally, point seven, the trend line in Asia. I kind of started with this, so I'll end with it. The big Asian tigers, I mean, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, many of you weren't born when they became Asian tigers. But those were the original Asian tigers. Now they're rich, wealthy democracies. That trend was argued. It was argued that that was something about Confucian society, East Asian cultural values. There were all these cultural exceptionalist arguments made for why this could only happen in a set of societies in East Asia. You have then seen that trend spread through Southeast Asia with the democratization of countries like Indonesia, of countries like Malaysia, the, the full democratization. You've seen it, obviously, the Asian tiger element take off in South Asia with Bangladesh's extraordinary development trajectory, now higher per capita income than either uh, India or Pakistan. It's really an extraordinary economic story. You see India as the fastest growing big economy. I mean, I think we can have a debate about some of those numbers. But India's economic takeoff following about 20 years behind where China has been. So you've seen this trend that is not culturally unique or exceptional. In fact, it's pan-Asian. You've had successive, sorry, I'll stop with Pakistan, just going doing the sweep, but you've had successive civilian transitions in Pakistan. Again, quite a problematic element in Pakistani politics, the role of the military. But there is nothing exceptionalist, I would argue, about the human craving for greater freedom and opportunity. And the fact that as these countries become successful, strong middle class and throw off that least developing country kind of G77 approach or that post-colonial approach, People actually want the same things. They want accountable politics. They want leaders who are not corrupt. They want opportunity under the law, prospects for their children. These are things that Americans understand because they're the same things we want. And I will just close with the thought that so many people see China, the PRC, the modern incarnation of Xi Jinping's China, as really Asia's pace setter, as its leader. And through this prism, China actually looks a bit like an outlier. In fact, it looks dramatically like an outlier in Asia, not like the pace setter. And I will, I will stop there, but I'd love to pick back up what that means, because I think it means we have a lot more to work with when we think about a US approach, a strategy to all of Asia and all the elements of power and influence that we can work with because of this democratic infrastructure that is there.
Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Well, let's stay on China. That's a perfect <laughs> transition to Carolyn. So over to you. Thank you very much, though. First, uh, Michael, I'll note that what you said about the voter participation rates in other countries should really put us to shame here in the United States, where so many people do not exercise that basic right. I do want to thank NBR for the opportunity to participate. I associate myself with the comments that Dan made about the quality and the important work that you all do. So it's really a thrill for me to be here. The views I'm expressing are my own. We always need to say that when, we, when we're talking about something associated with topics the Commission works on. When Roy asked me to speak on democracy in Asia at today's event, it was May 23rd, and we had just left a series of discouraging meetings in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong legislature, the LegCo, looked to be on the verge of passing an extradition bill that by allowing extradition to the mainland would essentially blow a giant hole in the concept of one country, two systems. I thought, when I accepted, I would be giving a fairly standard explanation of why Hong Kong matters and why we should be concerned about Beijing's increasing encroachment there. Of course, Hong Kong matters because having a place with an independent judiciary and the rule of law abutting mainland China is a powerful symbol of the importance of democratic values. It matters because there are 85,000 US citizens and over 1,300 US businesses in Hong Kong. It matters because Hong Kong is an international global financial system serving as a gateway to investment and commerce going into China and coming out of it. It also matters because we're living in a time of increasing threat to liberal democracy around the world and preserving and protecting the rights of millions of people to freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and freedom of association is important to all of us who cherish and respect those freedoms. All of those statements are important reminders of why Hong Kong matters but the extraordinary events of the past 10 days, which I do not think we could have predicted coming out of the meetings we were in. The millions of people, young, old, rich, poor, professional, working class, students and mothers, artists and teachers, lawyers and housewives, who engaged in civil, civic action, have demonstrated courage and determination, which serves as an example of democratic principles in action to people around the world. Their actions, their commitment to speak out to preserve their way of life is a stronger example of democracy in Asia than any statement I would actually be able to make. So many examples of Hong Kong's vibrant citizenry and commitment to basic freedoms have been illustrated in the past weeks. Concern has been growing among those of us who follow Hong Kong over the past 20 years about a decline in freedom of the press, accompanied by a growing concern about self-censorship, which was part of that decline. But Hong Kong journalists' commitment to covering all aspects of the recent events, including putting themselves on the front lines, demonstrated their dedication to freedom of the press and their professional responsibility to hold government accountable. In response, in the first protests, they were targeted by the Hong Kong police. Among the 27 complaints filed by the Hong Kong Journalists Association, there were 10 cases where police fired tear gas at journalists at close range. Three journalists were hit in the head with it, one was hit with beanbag or rubber bullets, and many were prevented from reporting. But working from the midst of these million-person crowds, Multiple reporters noted protesters protecting them. Alexandra Stevenson of the New York Times noted the kindness extended to her and to other reporters, including offers of food, water, and goggles. People were pulling reporters away when tear gas was being fired, and the crowds parted to let journalists get through so they could cover the stories protest police violence and harassment of journalists, a number of Hong Kong journalists showed up to the first press conference by the chief of police dressed up in protective gear for reporting on the front lines of unrest. They wanted to make the point 
that they had been at risk for doing their jobs. The thuggishness of Hong Kong police in their initial response to the protesters displayed alarming similarity to the thuggish behavior of domestic security forces in the mainland. It was unnerving to see the pictures of crowds of hundreds of thousands of young people juxtaposed with 5,000 riot police so close to the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. It was reported that some of the Hong Kong police have actually received training in Xinjiang, Xinjiang, where the Chinese government has imprisoned over a million Uyghurs in camps and where it has instituted a surveillance state that is Orwellian in its reach. It was also reported that a backdoor in the hospital authority's patient information system allowed Hong Kong police to use an interface to access confidential patient information, which resulted in the arrests of patients in the hospital for injuries caused by police excessive use of force. They tracked down people who had injuries that looked like they were coming from participating in the protest. People organizing the protests online are up against a very powerful foe. Hong Kong authorities are using some of the same tactics that Beijing uses to police the internet. The New York Times reported that the day before the protests flared in Hong Kong, 10 police officers showed up at the house of a young man administering a chat group. They forced him to open his phone and took data on a 20,000 person chat group organizing the protests. We have yet to see the consequences of the people, for the people who participated in all of this. I would say we have to keep an eye on it. Six months down the road, a year down the road, we might be finding that people have been targeted. A lot of this organizers used the Telegram messaging, messenger service to organize the protests. It was hit by a powerful DDoS attack, a distributed denial of service attack, reportedly originating in the mainland. Meanwhile, inside China, Authorities scrubbed the internet to remove any references to Hong Kong and what was going on there. A Financial Times reporter in Beijing tweeted that he got a call from an editor in Hong Kong and China Mobile sent him a message saying he should exercise caution and be on guard against risks. But the Hong Kong protesters were so organized with medical stations, water, snacks, eye goggles and masks, they developed a protest sign language of hand signals to request things when people needed them and to get these things through the crowds. Many reporters obviously have noted that the crowds parted when an ambulance needed to get through, and others have focused on how protesters went back to the sites of the protests to clean up the trash and to do recycling because they did not want to be called thugs. The creativity of the protesters using multiple modes of communication online and on paper to transmit information will serve as a model to others fighting authoritarian governments. And that, of course, is what Beijing is afraid of. CCP leaders cannot be happy that photos of throngs of protesters were on the front pages of major newspapers and magazines around the world repeatedly. The propaganda inside China was so blatantly false, it was almost laughable. A China Daily headline on June 10th, when there were a million people in the streets for the first protest was, 800,000 say yes to the rendition bill. And on June 16th, when two million people made it to the streets, it was parents in the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region took to the streets on Sunday to urge US politicians to not interfere with the SAR's extradition amendments and its internal affairs. 
but with no independent sources of, inf of information inside China, that's all many people saw or heard about world-shaking events in Hong Kong. With LegCo elections coming up next year, pro-Beijing politicians can't be happy that in addition to the black eye they received through the entire extradition bill fiasco, there were stations to register voters during the June 16th two million person protest. Even pro-Beijing politicians in Hong Kong must sometimes listen to their constituents. One of the most significant consequences of the recent exercise of democratic principles in Hong Kong is in the change in the political climate in Taiwan, potentially boosting the chances of re-election for President Tsai Ing-wen. The people of, of Taiwan have always watched closely the situation in Hong Kong since the handover in 1997. They have seen problems unfolding with the one country, two systems model. But seeing the possibility of Hong Kong losing its judicial independence and watching the popular uproar against such a proposition solidified support in Taiwan for the people of Hong Kong. It is not surprising that Taiwan's leaders have been outspoken in their support for the protesters in Hong Kong, with President Tsai Ing-wen and others in her cabinet issuing statements and tweeting out messages of encouragement. What may be more noteworthy is the reaction of the opposition in Taiwan to events in Hong Kong. Up until a few weeks ago, debate in the presidential campaign has been about economics and drawing closer to China. Now, because of events in Hong Kong, even the KMT candidates have had to come out against one country, two systems. The mayor of Kaohsiung and opposition party KMT president hopeful said Saturday that China's one country, two systems formula for unification will never be put in place in Taiwan if he is president. I'm going to quote him. One country, two systems can never be implemented in Taiwan. Taiwanese people can never accept it unless, unless, unless it's over my dead body. At a rally, he led the crowd in chanting, reject one country, two systems. So the KMT is now on the back foot on its campaign to get closer to China, and it will be interesting to see how events unfold in this strong Asian democracy. I'd like to close with a quote from Chinese dissident and exiled writer Ma Jian reflecting on the behavior of the Hong Kong protesters. He said, 30 years ago, I saw the same scene in Tiananmen Square as protesters parted to let ambulances through. Huge crowds can easily become violent mobs, but in China in 1989 and Hong Kong today, the vast crowds brought out the best of human nature, courage, wisdom, compassion. And I would argue that they have demonstrated a commitment to basic freedoms and democratic values from which we can all learn. Thank you, and I look forward to the questions. Thank you very much, Carolyn. We'll finish our presentations with Ambassador Tariq Karim. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. I think Daniel gave the overview which was necessary to set the scene. And I will come back to one or two points which you, you raised. Particularly, I will hack back to the symbolism of what happened in Tiananmen, because I, I was a witness to that. I was posted in Beijing from 88 to 91 and had gone there just from India. So my conceptions of what the system, political system was in Beijing was overturned in exactly three or four months from after I landed. For me, it symbolized the inspirational outburst of humanity for something which they craved to the pushback by an entrenched establishment which had very clear and definite ideas of where they wanted to take that chunk of humanity and where they wanted to go. In a sense, well, Roy asked me to speak for about 10 minutes, 
on the subject of democracy and governance in South Asia, and I said, hmm, that's like asking me to distill an entire ocean into a pond within 10 minutes. So I will basically touch on a few things, broad things, and then perhaps the Q&A session will bring out specifics. Number one, I think democracy in South Asia is in no better or worse shape than democracy anywhere else in the world today. I think, you know, every country has its own problems with how they are handling democracy and moving forward in it. Number two, governance, or rather good governance, is what we are concerned about. It's, it has a spotty record across the length and breadth of South Asia. So these are two general remarks which, which I want to place out front. Number three, democracy was adopted by India at the time of transitioning from being a colonial entity of a colonial power into coming into modernity. And basically, if you, the, the leadership at the time transitioning to independence said, we will adopt democracy and the institutions, basically the mother institutions being Westminster and the system being the way it is practiced in Britain. So that's number one. Now, if you take how long it took for democracy to really emerge into its own in Britain, from the signing of the Magna Carta in 1215 till the passing of Victoria in 1901, it was still a very imperial democracy. The bottom-up process overtook only after the passing of Victoria. So that's over 850 years or something, whatever the exact numbers is. In other words, it is an organic evolution. And that took place in a small island with a small population over these 800 years with several revolutions, dethronings, decapitations, till they come to the stage which we are all trying to emulate in South Asia. Number two, when the British conceded the principle of self-rule before independence, basically before that, two things which I would like to draw your attention to, who were going to be the practitioners of this new system they were creating. And I draw your attention to Lord Macaulay's famous minute to the parliament, how Indian education system should be which was in 1835, where he said, we need to create a class or, or a body of Indians who will think like us, speak like us, behave like us, and carry our own ideas forward. Basically, roughly, that's what he said. So in other words, the British picked up people from different classes, different backgrounds, different castes, different regions, different religions, took them to England, educated them in Eton and Harrow and Oxford and Cambridge and elsewhere. And when these people went back, they went back with these ideas, the new ideas, that this is how we should govern ourselves, without quite understanding that they, there was a vast gap between the way they looked at the world and their aspirations and what the people they were going to govern looked at. There was a huge gap to be filled in. In other words, what was, they tried to do the whole evolution of democracy in Britain of 850 years in that short span of when they were taking over. So in a sense, what we are seeing is still that tension between the aspiration 
and the struggle to get there. India as a whole, now nobody calls it Indian subcontinent because it's politically incorrect in some countries, but the Indian subcontinent has an imperial legacy from 3,000 or 3 millennia at least, if not more. Depends how long you take the history back. The imperial gene is very strongly embedded in the political character of the people. People still look on displacements as the dethroning of a ruler and a coming in of a new ruler. That is still the way they look at things. And that is still, in, it, it has diluted. I mean, I distinctly remember in 1976, 77, when there was an attempt at coup, before the news had spread, there were no, phones, uh, no cell phones or uh, other devices. People would heard by, hear by word of mouth or through the radio. The vendor who came to our house just said, the king has been dethroned. Now, I take that as the typical, the, the way of describing how he is viewing the political seal unfolding. It's one ruler has been dethroned and somebody else is coming in, but he doesn't know who. So that is the mindset with which we are working. Democracy is still work in progress. And all the South Asian countries today are democracy, but I would say they are democracies in different stages of imperfection. Which democracy is perfect? If somebody can tell me that, then I'll, I'll, I'll perhaps take that as the, as the model and try and apply that to, to India. Now, when the partition took place, suddenly the democracy came into another big tussle. The tussle was between having a parliamentary sort of democracy in the federal system and an aspiration of a certain group of people which kept growing towards reversion to caliphate. And that tussle has continued in greater or lesser measure depending on, on who are the people who come into power and what the configuration of alliances are in, in at least India, uh, in, in Pakistan, and to some extent in Bangladesh. So you have this constant struggle between authoritarianism, edging towards that, or democratization, and the struggle for that. I think in a sense, Bangladesh presents to you a constant struggle for trying to democratize despite the pushbacks by authoritarianism. And I think that struggle will continue. I agree with you that the elections in India, it's, it's humongous. 900 million out of 1.3 billion going out to vote over a period of five weeks or six, seven weeks. It's a huge exercise. If you were to try and reduce that into a small containable area, geographical area, it boggles the imagination. But by and large, I think it was a freely conducted election. I, I haven't heard any of the major political players come out and point fingers and say that it was you know, rigged and, and we will not participate. In, in Bangladesh, on the other hand, there's always been losers crying, grapes are sour, every time they lose. Okay, So that tradition has yet to grow. The institutions in India, I think that is where the genius of the founding fathers was. They invested in the institutions, and I think they have taken roots. There will be flaws. There are still flaws. There will be attempts by governments, successive governments, to try and mold the institutions in their favor. But I think the institutions have that resilience to survive those attempts. You might see ups and downs, but if that system prevails, I think 
the forecast would be, let's say, cautiously optimistic. Yes, the fear of majoritarianism taking over is there. It's, it's very much in the minds of Bangladeshis as well, and I suppose in, in other areas or within India among the minorities. These are early days. We'll have to see how actually they cope with this absolute power that the present dispensation has. So it'll be, for me, an interesting experience to watch how it unfolds because it will have implications for what happens in the other South Asian countries. In Bangladesh, it was clearly an exercise in overkill. I personally think, and, and even if there had been no interference, perhaps the ruling party would still have got close to two-thirds or even two-thirds. The overkill was not necessary, simply because of one factor, I think, what you mentioned, that the economic growth and the rate of growth has been phenomenal compared to anyone else, and even in India. Pakistan is a, is a far cry now. And I think when that happens, generally, the people, people feel a sense of desensitization from the politics. They are happy in, in having the opportunity to make money and acquire more wealth. However, in the long run, it is creating within Bangladesh, perhaps, the main body of a middle class, a solid middle class which is required. The second thing I think you need to keep in mind is that in the struggle, the tussle between, or the tension between the authoritarianism, anyone in power will want to stay in power forever. That's a given, whichever party it is. And anyone out of power will keep trying to mobilize forces to come and replace with his own ideas of how the state that process, I think, will, will simmer and come forth. Because in Bangladesh, there has been a constant struggle and against overlong authoritarian rule. It's a question of time. And I think, in a sense, the government can count on development and economic development, keeping them safe for some time. But we are not developing in a vacuum. We are part of a huge ecosystem, a global ecosystem. Anything in that e ecosystem, any disturbance is going to disturb that growth. And when that happens, people will start reacting to it. So we will see that trend that Bangladeshis have consistently demonstrated over the last 50 years of their existence, and even longer if you take the uh, cohabitation with Pakistan, to say, this much I'll allow, but not beyond this. Now, what will trigger that off, I don't know. Could be a series of things coming together and gelling at one point when suddenly you will have an outburst. I mean, what triggered off Tiananmen? There was perhaps under the surface a lot of things happening, but it was one death and the refusal of the government to give that person the honor that most people felt he should be given that just brought them out in the streets. From the largest demonstration having taken place 20 years earlier with only 200 people, leading to Tiananmen in the beginning, end of May, I think it was. There were 500,000 people out in the streets of Beijing. And people coming out of the hutongs and offering them food and water and drinks to these students with flushed faces. Even a student came to me and I offered him a glass of water. He just said politely, sir, can you give me a glass of water? And there were intelligence people standing there, but they did not interfere. Precisely because the government itself didn't know how to handle this. And in a sense, 
it was then a question of allowing that spontaneous chaotic outburst or controlling it and containing it, which, which basically in the end decided how they should proceed. What's happening in Hong Kong? I, I saw some forebodings of that when before Hong Kong was being handed over by the British to uh, China. I was there during the process at the time. I think that will keep happening. If we accept democracy as an evolutionary process, then this is where the struggle will continue. You will never have perfection, but you will always have the aspiration to perfection. And that progression forward, there will be turbulences. There will be excesses. And hopefully in the end, there will be a calm descending somewhere. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Um, before we open up for questions, I actually have one to throw to Dan. We focused here largely on East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia. Within the NBR universe, we consider Russia to be an Asian power. And certainly within the context of this National Asia Research Program, um, we, we view Russia as an important component of, of sort of thinking about US uh, strategic interests. Is IRI working in Russia? And do you have a sense of, you know, where does Russia sit? Is it, is it totally disconnected from these trends within Asia that you see? I mean, the trends, the trends I see that are buffeting Russia are trends in places like Armenia, which had a street revolution last year, a peaceful one, with a now a successful reformist new government. Ukraine, where three and four Ukrainians turned out to vote for a candidate promising a, an unprecedented anti-corruption campaign to be a servant of the people. In Moldova, where you have very fractious politics, riven between pro-Russian, pro-Western, now has a very reformist, strongly pro-Western administration of quite an unusual caste. It's quite a, an unusual coalition. It's quite interesting to watch what's happening all over Russia's Western periphery because Russia is not immune from these trends. It's also interesting because, of course, Russia doesn't have the Asian development miracle to boast, right? Russia's economy how many people know this? Russia's economy is about the size of the economy of Spain, which is not a top three or four European economy. Russia has missed the kind of development trajectory that China has launched. In many ways, Russia has regressed. Without its oil and gas, it wouldn't be much of an economy at all. So Putin doesn't have that to offer to his people. There is no such compact of the kind that maybe there is between the CCP and the Chinese people, which is this broad-based uplifting into the middle class. So instead, Putin is offering a version, kind of an oligarchic, kleptocratic model that enriches a criminal elite. And what's interesting about Russia in this broader conversation is that his numbers have come way, way down. So they're in economic dire straits. They attempted to raise the pension age last year, and Russians took to the streets in almost every major city in Russia to protest that. I mean, you actually had street power in Russia, so they rolled back those pension reforms. They have had to cut the defense budget by 20% in the last six months. So Russia, in many ways, missed the Asian economic miracle boat and does not have the same toolkit to offer to its citizens that maybe other authoritarian regimes like China would. And it very much looks like an outlier, including in its own cultural space in kind of wider Europe. Mm, okay, thank you. But yet, I mean, you can't not pay attention to the growing China-Russia relationship and what that means, not necessarily for the people inside of Russia, but you know there, there is a very close relationship between Putin and Xi. 
China's energy purchases from Russia are extremely important to the Russian economy. And I would certainly point to the near collision in the South China Sea between the Russian naval ship and the U.S. naval ship as something that is Russia out there doing China's bidding and, and what does that ultimately mean? Good. Well, rather than getting sidetracked into <laughs> China-Russia cooperation, which is something we've worked on a lot and it's been discussed a lot over the last day and a half, let's open this up for questions.